Take your seats. We're going to be in Romans 3 and Romans 4 this morning. Continuing our verse-by-verse study through the book of Romans. We'll be picking it up in verse 27 and Lord willing, time willing, get through verse, uh, I believe, 16 this morning is the goal. Just a couple quick reminders, just prayerfully consider some of these things here as we're getting closer. Just want to reiterate one more time last Sunday to sign up for Heart to Heart Great Marriage Program. Hope you can make it out for that next Sunday. Also, the missions trip coming up. I love what they did with the prayer calendar this month. If you once again, as Renee mentioned, announcements, different uh, Bible studies mentioned as well. Things just to keep in prayer, especially with the missions trip to Mexico coming up here in a week or so. And want to reiterate as well, I believe we put it on the Facebook, they're looking for someone to drive uh, the people up to the airport uh, for the missions trip. So if that's something you're able to do, that's going to be on Monday, March 9th, I believe, is when they need a driver. If that's something you're able to do, see me or see Rich, and we'll point you in the right direction with that as well. And once again, baptism coming up the 22nd. Prayerfully consider getting involved with those things. So here we are in Romans. We're going to do Romans, the end of Romans 3 and a good chunk of Romans chapter 4. Key word today is faith. Faith. The word faith is used 34 times in the book of Romans. 34 times. 17 times alone in chapters 3 and 4. So if God is using a word 17 times in the span of two chapters, I think there's a point that he's trying to get across. Now, I find this interesting, how difficult it is to define what the word faith means. It's kind of one of those tough words that I know it, I use it, I hope, in the proper context. But to really sit down and say, Lord, what do you really mean by this word? It's kind of difficult to do. Keep your hand here in Romans 3 and 4. Jump ahead, if you will, to Hebrews chapter 11. A lot of times people call Hebrews 11 the great faith chapter because it's all about faith. Now, as you're going to Hebrews 11, we're this understanding of what faith is. And why is it so difficult to have? It's kind of interesting. When Jesus taught on faith back in Luke 17, he did a teaching on it, and the disciples' response was, Lord, increase our faith. The disciples kind of looked at the situation and said, we can't do this. Increase our faith. We need more faith to be able to handle what you're asking us to do. So what is faith? Hebrews 11, verse 1. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. That's a good definition. Now, some of you may have a different translation. Uh, NLT says faith is the confidence that we have hope for what actually happened. It gives us assurance about things we cannot see. NIV, now faith is confidence in what we hope for and insurance about what we do not see. There's that idea of not being able to see it. I mean, faith really is believing and trusting in an unseen God to do unseen things. Because if you can see it, it's not faith. Now, I just want to reiterate that point. I know that's completely mind-blowing, right? You know, But if you can see it, it's not faith. That's why it's called a walk of faith is because we can't see the big picture. And we walk by faith, not by sight. That's what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5. Now, a lot of times when I'm talking to people going through difficult times, I have these little catchphrases I've noticed I use over the years. One of them is you walk in faith, not fear. Because you walk in faith that your unseen God is doing unseen things behind the scenes. He's going to help you through this. So you walk in the faith of that, not the fear of what could happen. Another one I like to say is it's time for faith to kick in. That you're going to go through a situation, it's going to be tough, it's going to be discouraging, it's going to be disappointing. And it's time now for faith to kick in. For you to say, Lord, I trust you, the unseen God, that you're moving in unseen ways. And it's time for that faith to kick in. But you don't know how strong your faith is until you go through a faith test. And I'm telling you right now, faith tests are some of the most difficult ones to go through. I had one this week. I always share this with you. 
this idea of whatever I teach, I either have to live it the week before or I have to live it the week after. I am thankful that I lived it the week before. I am done. Now, for you that have not had a faith test this week, guess what your week's going to be this coming week? I'm just telling you right now. If I was you, I would leave before we get going much further. Faith tests are hard. So I had a faith test this week, and I'm going to be completely honest with you. I failed. I failed. I remember calling Dawn. I was driving to an appointment, and I called her, and I was worked up, and I completely failed. My faith faltered in that time. And my mind was going 100 miles an hour. It was going 100 different directions. And I had these moments of I felt like I could walk on water, followed by moments I'm the worst person in the world. And you're just all over the place emotionally. And I haven't experienced that in a long time. And I thought, Lord, where's my faith? So finally what happened is I just started repeating this phrase. I love Jesus and Jesus loves me. I kept it simple. And that's what helped me through that time of just, Lord, I loved you and you love me. And that's all that matters at this time. I love Jesus and Jesus loves me. Now, what I've noticed with faith tests and trials, the situation normally doesn't change. My situation that I was struggling with this last week, it has not changed one bit. What has changed is my perception of the situation. What has changed is the way I'm handling the situation. I don't say that in some egotistical way because I know I failed the test the first time. But my situation is still the same. But I'm hopefully looking at it a different way, looking at it from a different perspective. Now, there's just two types of faith in the Bible. There's faith in what I call the spiritual matters. That is that you believe Jesus died on the cross for your sins. You believe in creation. You believe in the idea of heaven and your sins are forgiven. Those are spiritual matters that we have faith in. None of us were back there when Christ died on the cross, but we believe in that. None of us have experienced heaven, but we believe in that. We have faith in those spiritual matters. We generally do better in those than the next type of faith, which I call faith in daily matters. Relationships, work situations, bills. Isn't that amazing? How we can believe in an unseen God and we believe that he became man and died on the cross for our sins and we believe that we now have entrance into heaven through what he did. We believe in that, but I'm completely freaking out about tomorrow and what's going to happen at work. Faith in the spiritual matters, but yet we're failing in faith in the daily matters. And it's interesting. What caused the disciples to say to Jesus, increase our faith? If you look at the teaching before that in Luke 17, Jesus basically taught them, hey, guess what? You guys need to forgive each other when you wrong each other. That was his teaching. And they heard that teaching, I, I need to forgive people? And their response was, Lord, increase our faith. How many times have we said that? I can believe in the biggest events in the world, but you want me to get over that? Can't do that. You want me to trust you in that? Can't do that. It's usually the daily things, relationships, bills, works, health, life. Those are the things that bring us down. And the Lord says, wait a second, you can trust me with your salvation, but you can't trust them to meet your needs and help you through these difficult times. So faith in the spiritual matters, faith in the daily matters. Now back to Hebrews 11. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Verse 1, we talked about that unseen God moving in unseen ways. Verse 2, for by it, by faith, the elders, elders attained a good testimony. The first thing you see with faith is it's part of your witness. It's part of your testimony. How you handle difficult times is a witness to the rest of this world. If you falter in your faith and the tough times, that is part of the witness and the testimony. 
the reason the Lord sometimes allows difficult things to come into our life is to show us how strong or weak our faith is, generally how weak is, and then it also is an opportunity for us to show the world that I will stay strong in the tough times. It is easy to have faith in good events. It is. It's when the going gets tough that really reveals. It's like a spiritual flashlight that shines on you and says, these are the areas that need to work on. And what happens is when we have faith, that's how we obtain a good testimony, a good witness, is going through difficult times. We joked a couple Wednesdays ago or Sunday ago, I forget about it, but we don't hear too many people saying, hey, you know how I got saved? I read this article about a believer who won the lottery and their life is so amazing and that led me to Jesus. That doesn't happen. Generally, it's somebody who's gone through a tough time and we look at that and we say, I couldn't, I can't. But I see what God did in their lives. Faith through a testimony. In fact, one of the gifts of the Spirit is called gift of faith. The thing about the gift of faith then is it doesn't kick in until you need it. So when I hear some of these testimonies from people, and I remember one time, just a tragic event, uh, husband and, and wife, it was a car accident, they lost six, all six of their children, and they were on Dr. Dobbs and focused on the family, and I heard that, and I thought, I could never, I, I, don't, I could never handle that. And then they started talking about how they said they thought they could never handle anything like that, but when it happens, the gift of faith kicks in to say, there's a supernatural trust and an unseen God doing unseen things. And there's been times I look back over my walk with Christ or my ministry, it's like, Lord, I don't know how I got through that. And God basically says, James, you didn't. It's the gift of faith that you got through that. So it's a good testimony. Number two, I guess, verse three, by faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. Now, I'm all for apologetics, and I'm all for defending creationism. Every couple years, we try to have a creationist come out and really try to equip the church and edify them with stuff. But a lot of times, I think, as believers, we feel it's our spiritual responsibility, and you've heard me say this before, that we feel it's our burden to prove to the world that God exists. God has never asked me to prove that he exists in the Bible. And just think about this. How small would your God have to be that it's your responsibility to prove to people that he exists? Your God is so big, you don't have to prove that he exists. He says, I'll take care of proving I exist. But what about creation? He makes it very clear that he'll take care of proving creation too. He says that this witness of just looking out the window is proof enough. Now, I'm not saying that it's not our responsibility to have an understanding and use apologetics and use the science that the Lord has given us to help show creation. I'm fine with that. But it is not your burden to prove God exists or it's not your burden to prove that he created the world. He'll take care of that on his own. We believe in verse 3 by faith that he did that. Now, it goes on real quick. It talks about the example of Abel in verse 4, example of Enoch in verse 5. What I want to finish with for Hebrews 11 is verse 6. But without faith, it's impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. If you want to please God, you've got to have faith. You have to believe that this unseen God is moving in unseen ways. Think about this. When difficult times happen and our faith falters, what does that really show? It really says, Lord, we don't trust you. We don't trust you, Lord. And that's why faith is such a pleasing thing to God because it shows that no matter what I go through, I trust that my Father, my Savior, my brother, my friend is going to see me through this no matter what. So by faith, I please him. By faith, verse 6, I believe that he is and that he rewards. He rewards me 
as I seek him. Now, when I first got saved, I saw that word reward. Dollar signs start flashing, right? I mean, that's a reward. I mean, if somebody comes up and says, James, I want to reward you with a hug. Now, keep your hug. Give me money. You know what I mean? That's what I'm saying. I'm kidding. I like hugs. But my point is, we think of reward. We think of some type of almost monetary or possession gain. And I remember years ago being out here, and it was rich one time just sharing. He says, sometimes the way God rewards you is just peace in your life. And I've never forgot that. And that has become the reward I seek in the sense of, Lord, more peace in this fallen world. More peace in my house, more peace in my marriage, more peace in my walk with you. And that's really the reward I see. As I diligently seek God, there's peace and joy in my walk with Him. And a lot of times when I see somebody who does not have peace and joy in their life, I ask them, are you diligently seeking Jesus? Because if you're not diligently seeking the Lord in your life or in your marriage or in your relationships, you're not going to have peace and joy. You're not. Joy comes from knowing Jesus and knowing him personally and intimately and passionately. And without that, there's always going to be this God-shaped hole. But what's it mean to diligently seek him? Think about that. Diligently seek him. So there's a lot of things I do in life, and I don't do it diligently. I usually don't sweep the floors very diligently. I'm not really very diligent about loading and unloading the dishwasher. Had a bowl of ice cream last night. I was diligent in that. I'll tell you that right now. I was very diligent in that. See, here's the thing. I don't think this is really much of a teaching point because I think in your spirit and my spirit, we know for diligently seeking him. And as soon as we hear that, we know that the Lord is saying, hey, I'd like to see you a little bit more. I'd like to spend a little bit more time with you because we want to diligently seek him. Now, here's a point that I'm going to make a few times this morning, but it bears repeating. This idea of diligently seeking Him and being rewarded by Him. Be careful that this idea does not become this concept that God owes you for what you did. You hear me say this all the time. The reason you pray, the reason you're in the Word, the reason you serve and minister is because you love Jesus and Jesus loves you. If you're doing it to get something from God... That, God, look at how much I read today, you owe me peace. Or, Lord, look at how much I'm doing, you owe me this. No. No, it's all we do it because we love him and we do this in faith. Which is a nice segue back now to Romans 3, please. Romans 3. Now that we've understood and defined what faith is, when we see this word now mentioned so many times in this morning's lesson, we now have an understanding of what we're dealing with. So, Let's take that concept of faith and take that concept of serving because we love. Look at verse 27. Where is boasting then? Romans 3 verse 27. Where is boasting then? Is it excluded by what law? Of works? No, but by the law of faith. Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. Or is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also the God of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also. Since there is one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then make void the law through faith? Certainly not. On the contrary, we establish the law. Now, this is really a segue back to what we talked about last week. Verse 27, where is boasting then? Meaning, when we read those previous verses where it really explains to us what salvation is and how salvation is this gift of God and that He has justified us. He has made us righteous. He has given us grace. Verse 27, where is boasting? What could we possibly boast about? 
Nothing. What could we possibly say, look at me about? Nothing. It is all the Lord. He is the one that does absolutely everything. Verse 28, a man is justified by faith. It's by us believing in what Christ did and having faith in that. That's, that's all. It has nothing to do with us. If it had something to do with us, can you imagine that burden or what pressure that would put on you? I can't imagine as a pastor, if it was my burden to fix people spiritually. I mean, if that's the way God set up his system, to say, James, you are responsible. If I bring that person in this church, you have to save them. If that hurting marriage comes in, you have to fix it. If that lazy person doesn't want to go deeper in their walk, you have to make them. I can't carry that burden. I can't carry that on my shoulders in any way whatsoever. That's a personal choice they have to make. There is no boasting. And this is what happens. As you see Christians turn to boasting. Like they did something. Like they, they built a ministry. Like they built a church. Like it's all on them. No, it's, it has nothing to do with us. It is by the grace of God that anything happens. We're just called to be faithful. And I'm just telling you right now, if you're carrying some burden on your shoulders that you have a child, a grandchild, a coworker, a friend, a neighbor, and you feel it is your job to save them, fix them, clean them up, you're carrying a burden that God has not put on your shoulders. He has called you to be faithful, be a light and a witness in you. If you're involved in some type of ministry and you're carrying that burden, it's your job to grow it. This ever-chasing numbers game. Oh boy, I hate that. That competition of who's got the biggest ministry church. Forget all that. Love the people that show up to your study and ministry. And just love them. And if more people show up, love them more. If less people show up, you get to love them even more. most awkward thing could be if only one of you showed up this Sunday. Because I'd sit right beside you and hold your hand while I taught you Romans 3 and 4. Just love. It's not us. It has absolutely nothing to do with us. And what has happened in the 21st century church is you start seeing what I like to call that rock star Christianity, where it's because of a man or a woman this ministry is blessed and growing. No. Verse 27. Where is boasting then? It is excluded. Not us. Not us in any way whatsoever. So verses 27 through 31, it is by faith, not by us. Nothing to do with us in any way whatsoever. So he mentions this idea of flesh. Well, let's talk about this now. Verse 1, what then shall we say then? Abraham our father is found according to the flesh. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. Paul uses the big name to make his point. He goes back to Abraham. Big name. As of the Jews, the father of the Jews. And he uses him as an example to say this. If Abraham was saved or glorified by something he did in the flesh, then let's look at it. But he uses an example of Abraham to say what? He found, verse 1, nothing in the flesh. Nothing in him did anything at all. Verse 2, for if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about. But look, but not before God. Jesus, when he was in the garden doing his final night of prayer before he went to the cross, he said in Matthew 26, he said, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And that phrase, the flesh is weak, in the, in the Greek literally means the flesh has no strength. God is trying to tell us that there is no strength in you in any way whatsoever. 
There is nothing you can boast about, about any type of ministry or spiritual success or anything. There's nothing you can boast about. The flesh has nothing. Paul went on to say in Romans chapter 7, says that in my flesh there dwells no good. I know what type of man I am. I know the thoughts that go through my head. I know some of the actions I have done. And I look at myself in the spiritual mirror of life and I say, Lord, why do you think I'm qualified to do what I do? And God looks back at me and says, whoever said you were, it's not you. There is no boasting in the flesh. Abraham is the example that he could do nothing of himself to make himself a higher standard in God. Think about this for a second. Right now, if you go home for the rest of today, and you spend the rest of today in prayer and fasting and in worship and the Word, you would do nothing else the rest of the day but just completely, utterly devote yourself to God. Guess what? He would not love you any more than what He loves you at this moment. Isn't that amazing? Because you can't do anything to make Him love you more. Now, let's say you go home and you do absolutely nothing spiritual the rest of the day. You don't pray, you don't read, you don't do whatever. Guess what? He still loves you the exact same that He loves you right now. Now, as a parent, what's he going to be more happy with? Obviously, spending time with them. But there's nothing you can do to make him love you more. There's nothing you can do to make him say, I owe you for what you did. Think about this. Your time in the Word, your time in ministry, witnessing, evangelizing, missions, whatever it is, you're doing it just because you love Jesus and Jesus loves you. You're not doing it because of a have to. You're not doing it because of homework. You're not doing it because of some legalism. I see Christians that live their spiritual life legalistically. I have to read this. I have to pray. I have to serve. No, you choose to. And as you choose to, of your own free will, you just say, Lord, I want to go deeper in you. And what a freeing thought that is, is that you could just enjoy being saved. You can just enjoy God. And this is something the Lord's been working on with me for about the last year and a half. It's just this freeing concept of, Lord, I love you and you love me. And let's just, let's just serve together, Jesus. And I just think back to Christ when he was walking on this earth. We have these little tidbits of the conversation with the woman at the well, conversation with Nicodemus, Zacchaeus. But we have basically three years of public ministry kind of just summed up here and there. You know, John wrote at the end of his gospel that there's no amount of books that could ever record everything that Jesus did. But you know what I notice? Is I notice a lot of times Jesus is just hanging out with his disciples. And then we have this brief recorded conversation about God. And then they just kind of went back to more fellowship. Recently, I went over and did a visit with somebody. And we sat there for about an hour or so. We talked about kids. We talked about life. They're going through a tough time. We just kind of talked. But in the middle of this was this five-minute window of just this amazing spiritual that opened up. And we talked about God's love. And then the window kind of closed and we went back. And then there was another little window opened up and we talked about prayer. And I realized that's just what Jesus did. He just hung out with people. And as the door opened, he just started talking to them. And I started thinking about, how do I minister to people? I minister very straightforwardly. We're going to get together. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. And I started realizing, how about you just love Jesus and let's just hang out together and see where the Lord takes it. And it's this very freeing thing of saying, let's just live the life. And let's just be passionate about Christ in all ways. Because Abraham could do nothing, nothing to make himself in a higher standard of God. 
Nothing in any way whatsoever. Verse 2, he's not justified by works. Not in any way. Verse 3, for what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Abraham had faith in God and since he had faith in God, that is where he got his righteousness. Not by anything he did. Not by anything he did. But by yet just have faith in God. In fact, think of what Abraham did. Lied about his wife being his sister. He had that little uh, escapade with Hagar. So Abraham's a liar. Abraham resorted to the flesh with Hagar. You know, this is not the father of the Jews that we want. But God still said, I will count to him righteousness because of his faith. Verse 4, now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace but as debt. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Now, this is a really interesting concept here that Paul's trying to make. What he says here in verse 4 is basically this. When you work, you earn wages. And as you earn wages, it's something that you deserve. It's not a gift. Meaning this, you go to work, and you come back, and it's payday, it's Friday, whatever it is, one week, two weeks from now. If you'd go up to your boss and look for your paycheck, if your boss would look at you and say, you know what? I thought you were just doing this as a gift to the company. That would not go over well. Verse 4, when you work, your wages are not counted as grace, which means gift, but as debt. Your business owes you something for the time you put in. Now, verse 5 completely flips it around. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Paul says, now compare God's standard. The world's standard is, I work You owe me. You owe me for my work, and so you pay me. You are in debt to me because you owe me for my wages. God's economy, verse 5, I don't work, and I get paid. But if I choose to work in God's economy, I actually create problems for myself. Think about that. God is actually asking you, don't work for your salvation. Don't. And that's why he uses verses 4 and 5, is to completely just blow your mind, if you will. Because we're so used to this concept of, I do something and you owe me. So, I'm assuming you get phone calls from the telemarketers and everything like that, too. I get the calls, I get the letters, and it's that proverbial, if it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. When they start promising me all these things, with no strings attached, there's always a string attached. Here, God in verse 5 is basically saying this. Hey, don't work for your salvation. You can still have it. Yeah, what's the catch, Lord? No, no catch. I just love you. Don't work for your salvation, and you can have it. Just believe in me. Have faith in me. Okay, God, sounds good, but what's the catch? You know, I've been saved coming up to 22 years, and I'm still looking for the catch, and there isn't one. He just loves me. And that's what Paul is trying to say here. You don't work, you still get it. And now he uses the example of David, verse 6, just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord should not impute sin. Now we need to talk about this word impute. Now some of your translations do not use the word impute. I actually like the word impute. Impute is actually an accounting term. And a lot of you know my background is finance. So what impute actually means, what we would say today is we would say, I ran the numbers. I calculated out what you owe. So what it's actually saying is this. In verse 6, just as David also describes the blessedness, blessedness means just happiness. Describes the happiness of the man to whom God 
calculates righteousness apart from works. God runs the numbers on my spiritual life and says, I impute to you, I calculate to you righteousness. Verse 7, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are not covered. Blessed is the man, happy is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute, calculate sin. God runs the numbers and you don't owe anything. That's not possible. I know what I've said. I know what I've done. I know how I've acted. I am a sinner. I owe God. God says, nah, I ran the numbers and I'm not going to calculate any sin for you. That's an amazing thing. Now think about who said that. David. Let's go through David's resume real quick. Liar, adulterer, murderer, concubines, multiple wives. We can just go right down the list. That's the guy who says, guess what? God ran the numbers and I don't owe any, anything. That's a beautiful picture. Just beautiful. Imagine going out to eat. You order your meal. You eat your meal. You enjoy your meal. The expectation, the understanding is you get a bill. You took part of the service. You owe that. You ate. You owe them. The waitress comes and says your bill is nothing. They have imputed to you a free meal. They've run the numbers and said you don't owe anything. So why is it that when we hear these things, and God just says, blessed is the man who this happens to, oh, how happy he is, why is it that we still walk in this world like we owe God something? Why do we still feel like we have to earn his favor, his merit, and, you know, I haven't read the Bible in days. How could God care for me? I haven't been praying like I should. How could God love me? Because your prayer, your Bible study, does not change God's love for you. Does that mean you shouldn't? Oh, no, of course not. You love him so much that you want to know more of him. Now, I'm always excited when the first of a month falls on a Sunday. I just love it. Because, especially, this is just like a double blessing. And so I was really excited this morning. Because, since it's the first of the month, guess what we get to do? we got three things here. First off, and I know Renee mentioned some of this, so forgive me for being repetitious, but the New Orleans Daily Breads are back there. First of the month, starting March. So when you hear a message like this today and you say, Lord, I do love you. I do want to go deeper in you. I want that. You can go back and grab one of these little daily devotionals and start today. Right there. You sit here and you say, you know what? I do want to be that man or woman of prayer. Well, I'll be. Look at this. We've got this pretty little green calendar that there's certain things that you can pray for every day. And they even have a Bible verse. Go home, stick this on your fridge. And you may be saying, James, I love Jesus, and your teaching is so amazing that I want to go deeper because of what you told me. And I'll say, thank you. And I will say, here's one other idea that you can do. It's the first of the month, and you know this is one of my favorite things. Pick a book of the Bible and read chapter 1 today. Tomorrow, read chapter 2. And whatever day you are on that month, read that chapter. And if you pick a book that has 31 chapters, just like it does here in March, Proverbs always comes to mind. I know we did this back in uh, December. But it's just these little things you can do. And I want to tell you this right now. I find myself now being in the Word more than I used to. I used to be legalistic about devotions. I used to have, I have to read this, and I had my prayer list, and I have to do this. And now what I do, and I've shared this with you before, I have a Bible that I keep beside the TV remote. I have a Bible that's beside my bed. And I have a Bible that's on top of my fridge. And now when I go do something, I see that, and there's a part of me that says, Lord, I, I just want to. I just want to sit with you. I thought about how many times have I sat there by myself at my kitchen table, eating something, having a snack, just staring out my window, looking at my goats, my ducks, and my chickens, just mindlessly. Sit the Bible down. It may be five minutes. 
You can read a lot of passages in five minutes. You can pray a lot in five minutes. I still have a prayer list because my mind is not great, and I write everything down. If you come up to me today and say, hey, pray for this, I'll write it down. And I still use that prayer list as a reminder. But a lot of times I used to treat prayer like, okay, prayed it, prayed it, prayed it, check, 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 done for the day. I still pray through the day, but now when something comes to my mind, it's like, yeah, Lord, I remember that now. Cast your cares upon him. I really want to lift up that person's doctor's appointment coming up on Thursday. And it's just this freeing relationship. I mean, I can't imagine getting up with my wife in the morning and saying, Dawn, I'm required to say I love you three times today. So I love you, I love you, I love you. And I will see you in 24 hours. You know, that's the way sometimes we treat our walk with Christ. That's just love. And let's just be, I mean, go back to verses 6, 7, and 8. Just be blessed. Your sins are forgiven. I tell you this. If you go into something today or tomorrow or this week, and the pain is awful, be it spiritually, physically, or emotionally, and you find your mind just wandering down this pit, just remember verses 7 and 8. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. Wow. Lord, I'm blessed. You just love me. Now, what happens here in verses 9 through 12 is it's kind of a quick little teaching point, but it was very important 2,000 years ago. Because 2,000 years ago, the Jews would bring up this point of circumcision, saying, well, wait a second. Can't we be blessed because we did this? Because you've got to remember, we just got done studying Genesis on Wednesday nights. This concept, this institution of circumcision, was a big deal, a huge deal. We just read in Exodus that where Moses was getting ready to lead out the children of Israel, and he didn't circumcise his sons, and God was on his way to kill him. Because basically God was saying, Moses, as, as a leader, I can't trust you to do the circumcision. I can't have you lead. That's how big of a deal it was. Well, so now Paul basically says, well, since we're circumcised, Jews are saying this, we should still be okay, right? Verse 9, does this blessedness then come upon the circumcised, the Jews only, or upon the uncircumcised also, Gentiles? That's us. For we say that faith was accounted to Abraham for righteousness. How then was it accounted? Was he circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. Paul makes this point. Abraham was saved, accounted to righteousness, before he was circumcised. To show that it was nothing that he did. Nothing that he did. Same thing happens today. We always use the example of baptism. Baptism is amazing. It's wonderful. I highly encourage you in your walk with Christ to get publicly baptized. But if you look at baptism as salvation, you're completely missing the point. And that's what it's trying to say here. You cannot have righteousness accounted to you by what you do. It's through God alone. Circumcision did not give Abraham righteousness. Verse 11, And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith, which he had while still uncircumcised. So, that happened. He was saved first, uncircumcised, then circumcised after, that he might be father of all those who believe, though they are uncircumcised, that righteousness might be imputed to them also. There's our term again. Run the numbers, and they have righteousness. And the father of circumcision to those who are not only are the circumcision, but who also walk in the steps of faith, which our father Abraham was still uncircumcised. Once again, the point is simple. Abraham was right with God before he did anything to become right with God. What a beautiful picture that is. Now, we get to our final point here, building up to verse 16, verse 13. For the promise that he would be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise made of no effect. 
What that simply says is this. If it's by them doing something, following the law, God's faithfulness doesn't matter. We earn it. And he says, no, that's not the way it is. It's of no effect, he says in verse 14. Let me just say this point one more time to make sure you get this. The reason we do what we do, the reason we evangelize, we witness, we read, we pray, we serve, we minister, the reason we're here today is to not earn any more love from God, favor from God, or special place in God's hand. We just do this because we love Him. And if we are doing things because we think we're going to move up some spiritual ladder in God's economy, you're completely missing everything. We have the free will choice to choose to go deeper or not go deeper. See, years ago, when I... Just had this thought. Today's March first. It was uh, it was 15 years ago. I've been that you guys had me come out here as pastor. So wow, I didn't think I'd stick around this long. Now I'm kind of feeling a bit nervous. Um, but when I first took over out here 15 years ago, there was I I not from the church, but from me, it was this burden of I have to. I have. to. To grow the church. I have to fix that marriage. I have to take that person deeper. Boy, it's so freeing to step back and realize you don't have to. Let's just love Jesus, love the Lord, proclaim the gospel, and as we've said many times out here, equip the saints to go do what they're supposed to do. As we've said many times, this is a staff meeting. Let's get together on Sunday. Let's encourage you. You tell us what you need prayer for. You tell us what resources you need, and let's send you back out for the week to go do something. And then let's meet again in a week and encourage each other again and pray for each other again. Have a time of worshiping and then send you back out again. That's the way church is supposed to be. Because if it's us, if it's, if it's me, oh, it's not going to work. It's not. It has to be of the Lord and the Lord alone. Verse 15, because the law brings about wrath. For there's no law, there's no transgression. Verse 16 sums it up. Therefore... And remember, therefore, you see why it's therefore. Therefore, it is of faith that it might be according to grace, so that the promise might be sure to all see, not only to those who are of the law, but to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. Verse 16, faith according to grace. Those two key words, faith, me, trusting and believing in an unseen God, doing unseen things behind the scenes, that my faith kicks in in dark times. I walk in faith, not fear. I have faith. And where does faith come from? Prayer. Lord, increase our faith. Where does faith come from? Being in the Word. Romans 10, 17. Faith comes by hearing, and by hearing the Word of God. When I am in God's Word on a regular basis, my faith grows because I see what the Lord is doing and moving. So that grows me. If my faith is really low, how's my prayer life? How's my time in the Word? Those things grow my faith. So faith might be according to grace. And remember, grace, the free gift. Free. I can do nothing to earn God's grace. It's all through Christ. All through Christ. And what a freeing thing that is to just say, Lord, I accept that free gift. And because of what you did for me, I just want to do this for you. So, Lord, how can I serve you? How can I love you? How can I go deeper in you because I want to? 
And what a beautiful thing that that is. So I hope you are encouraged by this as you walk through this book of Romans with us and you look in Romans 3 and Romans 4, you start seeing this concept of just, Lord, you did so much for me and there's nothing I can do for you. Now I just want to love you and serve you. And then when you understand that, what a beautiful picture the gospel now becomes because now when you go out and talk to people, you can look them in the eye and say, listen, I want you to be blessed. I want you to have peace. I want you to have joy. I want you to have assurance. Think of all those words that we said this morning. And I want you to have faith in an unseen God doing unseen things. And let my life be a testimony in front of you. So that way you can see God moving in my life to hopefully impact you and all that you say and all that you do. What a beautiful picture that is. And it's not on our shoulders. Be it success or failure. It's not on our shoulders. I just want to be faithful to the Lord on what he has committed to me and all that I say and do. Worship team, if you can come forward here.